Thanks for tuning into Women in Product Marketing. I'm your host, Mary Sheehan with Adobe. This episode is with Vidya Drago, who leads product and solutions marketing at HubSpot. We discuss the PMM career path and how she landed in the product marketing space. You'll hear some amazing tips on how to prepare for a PMM interview and how to break into the industry. Shout out to our sponsor, Clue. That's Clue with a K, the leading competitive enablement platform for product marketers who drive revenue for their business. Clue helps you collect, curate, and distribute competitive insights to enable sales and revenue teams to win more deals. Share real-time insights across your organization with Clue's dynamic battle cards, delivered everywhere your sales reps live, and allowing them to contribute insights from the field. It's competitive strategy as a key lever of revenue. Elevate your role and outmaneuver, outplay, and outmatch the competition with Clue. This show is produced by Shareberg, the knowledge sharing platform for the fastest growing teams. It's the place to get on-demand answers for your questions and learn from leaders in the top of their field. Want more advice and insights? Head to sharebird.com. All right, let's do this. Welcome to Women in Product Marketing. I'm here today with Vidya Drago, the VP of Product and Solutions Marketing for HubSpot. Vidya has vast product marketing experience, including stints at LinkedIn, AppMesh, Salesforce, and Forrester. Welcome to the show, Vidya. Really excited to have you today. Thank you so much, Mary. I'm excited to be here. All right. Well, let's start off with my favorite question for this season, which is who or what inspires you? Yeah, such a great question. I thought about this because you gave me a heads up that you were going <laughs> to ask it. And I thought the best connection to sort of like who I continue to aspire to be as a manager is that like I try to look for inspiration with everybody that I work with or interact with or like come in touch with in some way. And so in looking for the best in people, I try to make sure that everybody inspires me in some way. So whether it's the way they manage a specific situation or the way they work or the energy they bring to something, you know, I try to like find a little nugget about every single person. And it's been able like to put me in a position where I like learn from so many of my teams, so many of my leaders like it's really great and you know I can call out like of course I idolize Michelle Obama who doesn't Beyonce is another twin mom like myself and so there's that you know I look in that direction too but love to make sure that I find something about everybody that inspires me that's so beautiful I love that and what wonderful examples to bring up too and your twin mom oh my gosh you're <laughs> my hero <laughs> that's amazing well, I'd love to hear about your current role. So VP of product and solutions at HubSpot. So tell us about that. How long have you been here? What are you all up to? Sure. Yeah. And I'll tell you that being a twin mom in my world is not as glamorous as it is in Beyonce's or JLo's. It means going to work with Cheerios in my hair, literally <laughs> on multiple occasions and not knowing it. You're kidding. Um, it's not what Instagram shows. <laughs> <laughs> I did not take post-maternity photos that looked that glamorous. <laughs> Nor will I five years later. Okay, yes. What are we doing at HubSpot? We're doing a lot. And I hope that we're doing exciting and great things. I mean, I think the thing that brought me to HubSpot is we have a fantastic product and we have so much of it. And we have like six individual hubs. We've got a marketing automation platform, a sales CRM. We've got a service platform. We've got an operations platform and we built it all from scratch. And that's not something every company or almost any company can say. And so I think that both the like vastness of our solution, as well as the crafted nature of our solution was something that a 
attracted me and continues to sort of attract a lot of people that work there. I would say the, the interesting challenge that that poses for product marketers is how do we convey a lot of complexity and a lot of value in a very simple and meaningful way to customers and prospects in the market? And that's something that we've iterated on. And I would say is another one of the reasons that I came. I think we took a bold move into being a CRM platform and kind of our growth trajectory into that has been like notably different from other players in the CRM space. I think more to come on that, like we're starting to think of like different directions. We're starting to think about where the CRM category is moving. And so we're doing some interesting things on the thought leadership and messaging side as well. And of course, HubSpot is a content and kind of thought leadership powerhouse. And so our academies, our blogs are all sort of content that tons of people over the course of their career have run into as they've Googled something about marketing that either they know something that they don't know and just found helpful references there. Those are the biggest things. We've got a fantastic product. We've got a fantastic product marketing and marketing team at large. And my organization, Product and Solutions Marketing, kind of connects, as many classical product marketing organizations do, connects the dots between our product organization and what it helps what we call our flywheel, which is sort of marketing, sales, customer success. Our job is to sort of help bridge that gap, right? How do we actually sell our products? How do we help sales sell our products in some cases? How do we work directly with customers? customers and buyers, we feel more and more that buyers are such an involved part of that process that they're like a core audience that we're focused on. So when you think about like sales enablement being a big part of the product marketing job, we actually think about buyer enablement being like the majority of the job. So yeah, that's, you know, a couple of things. Thank you so much for giving a full recap of that. That's so interesting. I've been following HubSpot for probably at least the last 10 years, and I've always been such a fangirl of your marketing. I think mm-hmm. anyone I've ever worked with on the partner side or worked with that's formerly worked at HubSpot, we are just talking about a mutual acquaintance. They're just bomb marketers and you produce such amazing content and it's always just top notch. So the inbound conference, for example, has always just been kind of the state of the art marketers conference for marketers yeah. and just having personas like Seth Godin, who, you know, helped out your brand. I mean, it just, it must be fun to work for a company like that. So it just really exalts marketers. Is it as fun? You know, it it is. It's a tough reputation to maintain internally, I would say. And not tough. You know, we've got a stellar product team too. And so I think it's hard to pick a favorite. Yeah, Um, no, totally. Right. So I think that it definitely feels like there's a lot of good teams and a lot like so much good things. And that makes being a marketer there obviously easier because you're selling a product people love. You're selling a product that customers love, that partners love, that they love interacting with and not just with the product. And so that definitely makes the job as a marketer easier. But I think it also gives us the way to sort of focus on like, okay, what is the content we'd want? What is the stuff that we need to do our jobs better? And sometimes like use ourselves as the persona. It's always a recommendation that you don't mm-hmm. do that. But in some mm-hmm. cases, we're able to say like, hey, you know, we're marketers, like how do we feel about this? Or what are some of the challenges? As much as we try to make sure that we have as much customer input into things as possible, you know, we can also sometimes say like, what are the challenges that we're running into right now? You know, what are the places where we're finding it more challenging to grow our business or we're finding it harder to reach our customers or whatever it might be and like kind of use ourselves as patient zero, so to speak. 
That's so cool. Wow. Well, glad to hear that it's a partnership that's going strong between product and marketing. That's what I like to hear. And it makes it easier when you have a fun product to actually promote. So that's awesome. Yeah. So let's get into your background a little bit. And dare I say it is intimidating and impressive. So you have an MS from MIT. I'd love to talk about that. And then from there, just kind of how your path to product marketing progressed. I mean, you've worked at Forrester, you've worked at a ton of top tech companies. It's just really cool to see that. I'd love to, if you could just walk us through the journey. Sure. Yeah. Happy to. I think I have a like varied set of experiences. Like I didn't follow kind of a straight path into product marketing. And I think it's largely because I've always been attracted to opportunities where there's like an interesting challenge and there's an opportunity to learn something. And that's actually led me in like lots of different directions. I think the heartening thing is that I've many times in that process felt like frustrated or like, oh, I should have just like set my sights on this job and like gone for it and like followed a straight progression into it. And now 20 years in, I can confidently say that I'm glad I didn't do that. It would have been boring, but there were so many times that I wish that I just said, hey, I want to be a leader in product marketing. Let me just work towards that. I can work in product marketing at multiple companies. And then I know what I want to be when I grow up, right? And instead, I just sort of did a bunch of things that were interesting and challenging that I felt and I tried to create a story out of them, but I think have gotten me a varied set of experiences that I think now behoove me, but I wasn't able to appreciate it along the way sometimes. Got it. Can you lay out the steps for us a little bit? So I know in hindsight, it's nice to package it, but um, sure, so yeah. you got your master's, what was your first job and what were you thinking of? And then how did it progress from there? Yeah. I mean, I actually, as an undergrad, studied cognitive science and I wanted to be a designer and I graduated when the economy tanked and I decided to go get a master's degree and because I couldn't get a job basically. And I luckily ended up kind of trying to follow a design path. I was like not a talented designer and yet was like convinced in my mind that the coolest job to be was like in UX or design some capacity. And so I went to the media lab at MIT, which some people have heard of is kind of a little bit more of like an alternative sort of media led sort of direction. And so I didn't even follow like a straight path for a designer. Like I should have gotten to design school and I like applied, but decided that this was sort of like an interesting and different path to go on. And immediately after I graduated, I was like, okay, I want to do something like interesting in design. And I took a job at a small company that was like, I was sort of in their office of the CTO. I did a bunch of like tech tinkering kind of, I set up their like demo environments. I, you know, set up their executive briefing center and like managed that for a while and like just did fancy demo work and did some design as part of that. I did that for about a year. It was sort of like, eh, I'm not that into this. Like, let me go down a classical design path. And so I took a job as a UX designer at a product company that makes enterprise like handheld barcode scanners and things like that. And I was like one of their few UX designers. They had a bunch of like human factors and product designers. And I joined as sort of their first UX designer. And I just like, I wasn't a good designer. (laughs) (laughs) As much as I tried to be and wished I could be, it was like the coolest job, but I was not good at it. And they can appreciate it at least when you see someone (laughs) that is amazing. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So jealous, but yeah, always have so many like talented designers in my friend circle and community now, just because I'm so like drawn to the work that they do. But I, along the way, I guess I like stumbled on the fact that like one of the things that I was good at doing was like user experience research. And so going out and doing qualitative research, meeting with customers, understanding their challenges, reading between the lines, like all of those things were things that I actually excelled at. And 
understanding where that had implications for what we were building and like what we should put on the roadmap, what opportunities it offered for the company to be able to solve that problem turned out to be a niche that I did turn out to be good at. And that was something that like grew a career path that I would say I didn't even knew existed. So I did UX research there for a couple of years. I really enjoyed it. I felt like a lot of times I was making the case for like, why do we do this research? Like, why do you need qualitative research? What can it do that market research, you know, can't do that scaled, you know, qualitative or quantitative research can't tell you that focus groups are biased in certain ways and don't always work for certain kinds of feedback or certain kinds of insight that you want to gather. And so I spent a lot of time like making the case for that at the company. But when I got to do the research, it always proved super interesting interesting and fruitful and had a lot of interesting outcomes for our product roadmap. And at the time, I personally was like moving to the Boston area and happened to like, I don't even know how I stumbled upon an opportunity to like join Forrester as an analyst as part of their customer experience practice. And I still have a number of mentors that came from that time, folks who are still at Forrester, folks who've left and done other really great things in the customer experience space. But I basically got to go into like full-time as an analyst, be like helping companies make the case for more customer experience and design investments. And so I parlayed that into an opportunity as an analyst writing about design agencies that you might partner with or qualitative research firms that you might partner with. Like, what does a good design look like? How do you do it? What's the process? What does it mean to like start with the customer at the center? What is a persona? Like, how does it work? Kind of all of the basics sort of, it was somewhat early days. And so I spent seven years there just writing, consulting, like researching, talking to some of the smartest people in the field and kind of got a probably my best actual real life learning experience, like learning from experts. Wow. Um, and for those that don't know, Forrester is, in my opinion, the gold standard of business research. It's kind of like consumer reports for, <laughs> for any business area that you're hoping to explore. And so you can partner with them and get their information and partner with analysts like you were and really get a further understanding of what you should be doing to drive your business in many different areas. So yeah, I've worked with them on a few different projects and I'm always just blown away by the talent there. But what a cool way to grow your research search arm and kind of flex into that. And can I also just say, it's very refreshing that you admitted that you weren't a great designer. I think we always talk about strengths finder on the show and leaning into your strengths, but it's also good to just know what you're not good at and just move on. So yes. at least you were honest with yourself and you're not like a very frustrated UX designer. <laughs> yeah, partially talented UX designer. Yeah. Like could have done it. That's awesome. So okay, so after that, after Forrester, was that the jump to PMM from there? Yeah, through like a couple of random missteps after like steps and steps around kind of to get there. I was at Salesforce for a couple of years. I did a couple of different roles, a little bit more PMM or engine management design team there and kind of designing new like services products and then moved to corporate marketing for a little while and then did a more classical PMM role at AppMesh, which was a tiny startup. And then even at LinkedIn kind of jumped around and then went back to PMM there and spent about five years there. And yeah, so, you know, it was kind of in and out of PMM into like content marketing, into corporate marketing, but yeah, kind of always centered around product strategy, product roadmap development, insights. Yeah, so it was maybe not titles that were like always PMM, but doing very related to PMM work. 
That's really cool. Yes. I see that a lot. Sometimes it's just not a function yet at different companies. So they're not really calling it product marketing, but you're really doing the work of it. So that's nice that you've been able to center around that and find your strengths and then now grow in your leadership career as well. Yeah. Um, And I think one of the interesting things, just thinking about like people entering a PMM career, I think is that you don't always have to have PMM in your title to be doing mm -hmm. things that are PMM or PMM adjacent. And I think it's like knowing how to, you know, understanding the breadth of the function well enough that you can communicate why what you are doing is like relevant experience to moving into a PMM titled role, I think can often be just as helpful as like actually having done a labeled PMM role. You basically need to PMM your resume to show, to package up what you've done, the experience to show someone that you have done the experience with PMM. So PMM exactly. <laughs> All about positioning. As long as you work on your positioning, you'll be fine. You'll be great. <laughs> and then along the way, obviously you had twins. How old are they at this point? They're, they are five years old. They're two oh weeks into God. kindergarten. Oh my uh, gosh. So. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so exciting. What would you say is one of the hardest parts about balancing mom life and being at the level you're at as a VP? I think persistent guilt that you are always bad at something. It's, I think you just have to like finally get over it, but feeling like, oh, I can spend a little bit more time with the kids or I can jump on one more call or answer one more email or get back to somebody who's like waiting for me, you know, waiting on something from me. It's constantly feeling like you're kind of like doing both at not that great of a level, but I think you just always have to be able to draw the line at work and you always have to remind yourself that your kids will be okay. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm going through that now with two young kids yeah. as well. So I'm kind of selfishly asking to see. Oh, <laughs> you the have fact that, that you are okay. That's something you are that. hosting a podcast, Mary. <laughs> that is what about you inspires me. Is your side hustles are incredible. Thank you. <laughs> At three thirty in the morning, I was definitely questioning my life when the baby woke up. So I think we we're all going through it right now. But that's really incredible. I mean, I think it's I love talking to women that have been able to balance that and still have an amazing family life and be able to have an amazing career too. And I think it is achievable. So it's really cool to see that you've done it and sounds like you're crushing it at both, but yes, the mom girl mm -hmm. thing is real for sure. Yeah. Well, let me jump into some of our questions from a recent AMA that you did with Sherbert, mm -hmm. which I think are really helpful and wanted to hone in a little bit more on building the PMM career. And that's why I was really interested in hearing more about your background. But just really tactically, what are some good resources to practice PMM interview questions and case studies? So people listening that are maybe wanting to get into PMM or wanting to up-level, what should they be thinking about in your opinion? You know, I think Sharebird has a ton of great resources. You know, we talked about Reforge and others. I think there's a lot available online that are really solid. I think the thing that some people opt for case-based questions, and I definitely gravitate in that direction too, but I usually try to pull that out of a person's own experience and better understand like how much they understand the business fundamentals and like what levers PMM can pull and influence and things like that from their own experience experience. And so oftentimes, like, I've actually even prepped, like, sort of taking some business questions, I'll give you an example, and trying to sort of like, turn them on my head and like, ask them about like my own experience. So, you know, I think a classic question that I tend to ask lots of people that I interview is, 
you know, you're making a decision whether to recommend investing in a product feature, right? And I usually change up the product feature. I usually use the company that I'm at and something that we've actually decided recently, right? Whether it's to launch an operations focus product at HubSpot or build a specific feature into Sub Navigator at LinkedIn, you know, you can always sort of like pick something and have people walk you through, like, how would you go about the process of making that decision? right? What kind of information would you need? How would you evaluate the benefits and trade-offs? Who would you need to talk to, right? And how would you get to a final recommendation, right? And that's not a classical, I mean, it could be, right? For an organization that is like a very earlier stage company that makes lots of decisions about what to build, what not to build, like product marketers that are really closely aligned up to product, helping guide decisions about product roadmap, gather a lot of feedback, run betas, like those kinds of things. I think they're making those kinds of decisions all the time or making those kinds of recommendations and framing up those problems for their companies and the decision makers at their companies like a lot, right? And so that's often a question I ask because it helps me understand like, how much they have a grasp on like business fundamentals. Who are you building this for? Will it drive increased revenue because it's for attracting new prospects, getting new people in the door? Is it something that drives deeper engagement for existing customers? Can you get more value out of those customers? Can you get more time spent doing whatever you want them to do? Does that get you more revenue? Like, you know, all of those things, right? Understanding pricing levers, it helps you understand whether they know, like, how does your pricing model actually work? What are the nuances of it? Like, what pieces of it can you adjust? And where do you make recommendations on? And then, of course, like how do you better understand the pain point that you're actually solving? And then that can follow on to a set of questions around how would you position this, right? Like, how do you understand that pain point? Who have you talked to about it? Like, how much do you understand it in the words of your customer? And so I'll ask them about like, what's the pain point that you guys solve? Like, tell me a little bit more about how you actually talk to customers. How do you get ongoing feedback on that? How do you dig into sort of like nuances on it? How do you talk to other people about it? And half the time, I'm literally just like, especially if it's somebody in an industry that is not similar, like, can I understand? Understand it as a human being, right? If you're in, you know, medical technologies or you're in finance or some other industry, like, can I actually understand like what you do and what the pain point is? Like, do I feel that person's pain? Like, do I feel your customer's pain? So I'll really ask about a lot of on the job things. And so I think being able to speak to those really well and very confidently, I think is like the biggest thing that I hope people who come into interviews with me prepare that you can confidently tell me what's the product you work on? What's the elevator pitch? Who does it solve a problem for? What does that pain feel like for the person? What does it feel like when it's solved, right? Like, so I think those are kind of, those aren't classical like product marketing questions, but they are in the context of like what that person does. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing the detail of that. I've actually been asking pretty similar hypothetical questions too, because I have some business challenges that I want to get perspectives on and they know how to- (laughs) Pre-consulting from your interview. (laughs) I'd love to hear this. But really it's about getting to the core of, yeah, how would they approach it? How do they think? Would they- Exactly. Would they be taking multiple steps, talking to customers, talking to the right people, the company pulling in the data, and then also having kind of a feedback loop for the impact. And so I do love those kinds of questions. And especially when people can add on an example of when they've done something similar, I think that Mm -hmm. really cements it for me instead of just answering the hypothetical, which is what you're asking and really important, how can they bridge the gap if we've done something similar? So that's just a tip that if you can do it, that would be great. Yeah, that's awesome. I would also really want to understand from you, 
how you think about product marketers either focusing and being great at one specific niche or trying to be more of a generalist. And there's different frames of thought. We've certainly talked about it a lot on the show, but I'd love to get your perspective on that. Yeah, it's a tough one because I think that there are lots of times that I've lost out to opportunities to people who are better generalists early on in my career or deeper on something that I thought I was fairly deep at. And there's always moments where you're like, oh, I should have done that other thing, right? Like Mm -hmm. I should have broadened my experience by taking that other position or tried for that other project so that I could have experience doing the thing that I'm not normally good at or that I haven't focused on for the last few years. And there's always moments where you're like, okay, I want to really work at this company. And like, they want somebody to lead positioning and I don't have the depth of experience needed, right? I should have just focused on that, right? So I think there's a need for both. But I would say that's where you just have an opportunity to be authentic to like your own interests within product marketing. Like I think the lovely thing about product marketing as a discipline is that there actually are lots of areas to excel at. It's not something where like, if you're a content marketer, if you're not a good writer, like you're kind of not good, right? Or like if you're a designer and you're not really that visually talented, like you're probably not a very good designer. So I think, and you know, that's a broad generalization about other career paths, but I think you got to pick your interest. And if it's in, I mean, for me, it's been in like learning new hard things. It's been in problem solving. It's, you know, and I came from a background as an analyst doing a lot of writing. And so positioning and messaging came somewhat naturally to me. And so I had a little bit of a specialization in that when I entered product marketing. And then because I constantly was like, oh, that looks really interesting. Or, hey, I don't know anything about that. I want to learn about that. I sort of broadened my experience from there. I still consider like my strength in positioning and messaging first and foremost. And, you know, born of sort of qualitative research and enjoying like UX research and insights and stuff like that. But I think it's a personal decision, right? Like if you're a great writer, a great communicator, absolutely like double down on positioning, messaging, like lots of companies need it. And it's a highly valuable skill set. If you're an MBA and you've got a great business background, product strategist, and you want to dive into, and you're not going the product manager route, you want to like dive into product roadmaps and influencing product direction, absolutely lean into that, you know, and there's so many other things in between. So anyway, I actually think it's like not one or the other is like the perfect thing. Yeah. And the grass always feels greener. You You don't always get the opportunities to do both. And I do think there's something to be said for being a true expert in one of the areas before you Mm -hmm. expand out. And I think the more I talk to people, I realize everybody started somewhere like yours was more messaging and positioning based. Mine was more launches. Some people it's research or you were research also, but Mm -hmm. you have to really become an expert and extremely confident in one of the areas in order to then feel confident kind of being that full stock PMM. So either, either way, just PM. Mem your experience, like we were talking about, just yeah. whatever it is. But yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I think that it's great to learn all the skills, but you have to start somewhere. And yeah, come for sure. Awesome. And I think that like the rush to go and learn lots of other things is not worth trading off depth in a specific area. Like yeah. really being an expert in one of those things. And then it's okay to build from there. But like, yeah, I think it feels like there's more often a like instinct to like, oh, I have to broaden. No, I have to broaden like too quickly. Yeah, definitely. All right. And our last question for this section, wanted to talk about the career progression. So moving from the senior PMM, some of the individual contributor type of role to then management director and above, what do you think are the skill sets that people should be thinking about in order to move up in their careers? And what general advice do you have for getting to do that? 
Yeah, we had like a manager team breakout. And yesterday I was talking to some other HubSpotters about this. And I think, you know, one of the things that happens as you move into management is that often like a really talented individual contributor excels and then moves into a role where they're leading a team and subsequently multiple teams and goes on from there. But it's like they got promoted on the like their exceptionalness as an individual contributor. And that is often not the skill set that like has them excel as a manager. And in fact, sometimes it's the thing that like actually makes them not as good <laughs> at a manager, right? Because they know the answer and they've been really great at getting to the answer quickly and they know what it is probably. And so there's always like an urge to just like tell your directs how to do things and tell people how to get it done. And yes, if you're managing a younger team or more junior team, like you might need to do that in some cases, but there are also lots of places in order to like help people grow that you have to kind of stand back and let them do something themselves, even if it's not the way you would do it and be open-minded that the outcome could be just as great or better, or like let them attempt it and kind of provide guardrails to like get them in the right direction. And so I think that's actually the toughest part about moving. It doesn't speak to sort of like how you get yourself in this situation. You know, I come back to actually what you said, like, I think the ability to just like demonstrate expertise on something often is the thing that like puts you in a position where you're like, okay, you know, there's also a little bit of luck, right? Your company has to, or your company or the opportunity that you're walking into has to like want that thing or need it at scale, right? And I think it's great to like parlay that depth of experience into, you know, roles where you can manage small teams, like practice that skill set of how do I guide people to an answer instead of tell them the answer? How do I help them hone their own ability to get to an answer or structure a problem to get to an answer? I think it's always great to start with like a smaller team it's something that you are good at. And so you can really like practice the skill of being a manager. Sometimes hard because you have to like hold back your want to just do it quickly and efficiently yourself, which is what you have been doing. But I think that being able to like really practice that with a small team is I actually found that like harder step for me was when I managed like multiple layers, right? And I managed managers. That's when I found that like I had the hardest time understanding how to intimately understand the work without overstepping, but still like provide the right input guardrails structure for teams so they knew how to execute. Got it. That's that didn't great. really answer your question, Mary. No, no, I love it. I know it's really cool to hear your experiences at the different level. And I love it. Here, let me ask one that's related, but when was the first opportunity that you had to manage? How did that happen for you? So actually at Mesh, like small startup, I kind of managed a small team, like obviously it was a small enough company that it wasn't super formal, but, you know, had a fair degree of influence to sort of like guide other people's work. At Salesforce, I sort of took over a small team and had an opportunity with a bunch of designers to sort of work on developing kind of a service offering. And so I would say that is probably my first time managing a team. It's interesting that like, even at Forrester, as you do a project, you sort of like coalesce into to a team and you manage those folks as an analyst and then those people sort of move off onto other things. And so I feel like I had a, lot, a fair amount of practice before I got there because I wasn't somebody who was like, okay, I have to like climb the ladder and sort of like managing teams is like the next step. And I never felt the pressure to sort of go that route in order to advance in my career, but it, I had an opportunity sort of naturally to have lots of practice, whether through interns or in research or in other capacities. And so when I did, it didn't feel like too much of a stretch to have a small team and like guide their work. 
Got it. Yeah. And I've heard that story a lot and it can certainly relate to it in my own experience mm-hmm. where you either join a smaller company like at Mesh. I was at a company called AdRoll that was 500 people after coming mm-hmm. from Google where suddenly there's an opening and an opportunity for you to manage based on your prior experience or expertise or going into like at Salesforce, it sounds like a growing business unit or one where you're maybe the first person in that role versus product marketer and getting that. So Because I do see, I mean, a lot of people stall at this phase of, hey, I want to move from IC to manager. And it does seem like there's a lot of forces that are outside your control of being promoted to that. It's go where there's an opportunity and go where there's growth in a certain area and they will you know, put you into that role, hopefully sooner, it's a better path. But one thing I've noticed too, is that once you're a manager, and you might think about this for the VP club as well, but once you're a manager and have managed teams, it's very easy to be a manager at your next role. They're just like, oh, great, check that box. Awesome. But it's really hard to get over that hump. And so it might be that now that you've managed the managers and have a team, they're just kind of looking for that. But it's, I think it's hard for employers to do like, oh, I'm going to take a chance with you. So you have to kind of find the right opportunity and be sometimes it's just luck honestly yeah or time you know yeah so there's not a perfect answer but it's not just you do amazing work and then it's just the natural next step it does seem a little bit more new externally yeah right for sure yeah it's there's no like one straight path I think even I would say like there's even like pros and cons of you know you go from a place that's relatively small and even the structure you have as a manager and the guidance you are given to manage somebody is very minimal and so totally I felt very lucky like you know when I got to officially in a capacity like that at Salesforce there's so much infrastructure around like managing fundamentals and like how to think about compensation and like there's just like this whole structure and you know because the big company it's much more you know there's teams to support you on all of those things and so you have like structured experience on all of those things and so I feel like going from there to a small company meant that I took that like structured thinking and like you know how to help somebody think about like getting promoted or getting raised or you know and even if we didn't have that at those companies I'd bring kind of like that structure to it and yeah and you know you see it at a LinkedIn or you know even going from like a LinkedIn to a HubSpot, which is a much smaller company. I think there's like some things that LinkedIn was like much more invested in. And so I was, you know, able to like bring some of that experience of like, okay, here's an idea of how we do it. And I would just like do that on my team. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. All right. Now it's rapid fire question time. So three rapid fires for you. The first one, who have been your strongest mentors in your career? Probably a lot of other analysts that I worked with at Forrester. Carrie Bodine wrote a book called Outside In with her co-author, Harley Manning. Like I worked with and for each of them. Bruce Temkin, who manages at Qualtrics, the CX Institute, also a mentor. So yeah, I feel like I had a lot of great luck having like sort of bigger names in the space like that I've worked with in the past. That's amazing. All right. Hard to boil down, but what is the one thing that has been the most important in terms of growing your career? Curiosity to like be in interesting places that have hard problems to solve. That's awesome. All right. Last question for you. Why product marketing? Oh my gosh. It is such 
this is like the good of product marketing and the bad of product marketing. It is literally different at every single company. Like, and there are so many parts of it. So how could somebody who's curious and always interested in solving new problems and having our challenges, like not love a career path that's always different everywhere. That's so amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been so fun to get inside yeah, your brain awesome. and get to hear all about your career path and everything amazing happening at HubSpot. Thank you so much for being part of the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's been so fun. Thanks, Mary. This show is produced by Sharebird, the knowledge sharing platform for the fastest growing teams. It's the place to get on-demand answers to your questions and learn from leaders in the top of their field. Want more advice and insights? Head to sharebird.com. We'll also link Vidge's AMA in the show notes. Shout out to our sponsor, Clue. That's Clue with a K, the leading competitive enablement platform for product marketers who drive revenue for their business.